Section 16 of Rational Theology and Christian Philosophy, Volume 2, by John Tullock. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 5, Henry Moore, Christian Theosophy and Mysticism, Part 2. Soon after he became Fellow of Christ's College, he seems to have acted as tutor to several persons of great quality. His deep thoughtfulness did not take him off from all that due care that was any way requisite for the discharge of so great a trust. His biographer speaks on the authority of personal knowledge and letters which had passed betwixt Moore and some of his pupils, one of whom told him in particular, quote, what excellent lectures he would deliver to them of piety and instruction from the chapter that was read on Nights in His Chamber. Close quote. Others confirmed the same report, and we can easily understand the hearty bonds of sympathy which would unite such a tutor and young men of a refined and thoughtful turn of mind. But amongst all his pupils the most interesting was a young lady of noble family, a heroine pupil, as his biographer says, of an extraordinary nature. This lady appears to have been a sister of Heneage, Lord Finch, afterwards Earl of Nottingham, Chancellor and Lord Keeper under Charles II, a well-known statesman of great legal ability and eloquence, who, with something of the harshness and subserviency of his age, maintained a high personal character and was animated by genuine and lofty religious aspirations. Footnote. In evidence of this, it is enough to mention that Cudworth's intellectual system was dedicated to Lord Finch, in acknowledgment of his hearty affection for religion and zeal for it. Cudworth also speaks highly of his eloquence, while Pepys says, quote, He was a man of as great eloquence as ever I heard or ever hoped to hear in all my life. Close quote. The main evidence of his harshness is a saying attributed to him when Andrew Marvel proposed that the fees incurred by Milton during his brief custody after the Restoration should be refunded by Parliament. No, said Finch, quote, Milton had been Latin secretary to Cromwell, and instead of paying one hundred fifty pounds, he well deserved hanging. Close quote. End of footnote. Thus distinguished by birth, Moore's favorite pupil married Lord Conway and settled at Ragley in Warwickshire where at intervals he spent a considerable part of his time. He had the highest esteem for her, and the feeling was mutual, notwithstanding causes of difference which arose betwixt them. He was wont to say, quote, that he scarce ever met with any person, man or woman, of better natural parts than the Lady Conway, close quote. And she, in her turn, had an extraordinary value for his genius. Her husband was scarcely less enthusiastic, and is said to have treasured everything of Moore's with as much reverence as if it were Socrates. It is added that, quote, as she always wrote a very clear style, so would she argue sometimes, or put to him the deepest and noblest queries imaginable, Close quote. Lady Conway was of delicate constitution, and appears to have suffered much, particularly from pains and disorders in her head. Her bodily infirmity, as in many similar cases, had developed her spiritual enthusiasm, and she gradually passed from Moore's pupilage into the ranks of the Quakers. This was a great blow and discouragement to him, and he entered into many arguments, not only with her, but with her Quaker friends. He wrote a letter to Penn concerning baptism and the Lord's Supper, and even tried a discussion with their great leader, George Fox. But Fox, either by his rudeness or his ignorance, proved too much for him. He said to someone, quote, that in conversing with him he felt himself, as it were, turned into brass, so much did the spirit, crookedness, or perverseness of that person move and offend his mind. Moore failed to reconvert his pupil, but he retained her friendship. 
he continued to spend much of his time, as before, at Ragley and its woods, and there composed several of his books, at Lady Conway's own desire and instigation. When she died, she left him a legacy, and he, on the other hand, drew an interesting portrait of her in the form of a preface to a volume of remains of her genius, which at one time it was designed to publish. He drew this portrait under another name, and with so much address, that we are told, quote, the most rigid Quaker would see everything they could wish in it, and yet the soberest Christian be entirely satisfied with it. Quote. Footnote. The preface was written under the name of Van Helmont, and is printed at length in Ward's Life. End of footnote. Lady Conway was evidently a remarkable person, and there is some reason to think that she exercised a greater influence upon more than his biographer is willing to confess. Her mysticism was in close affinity with one side of his religious nature. She had studied in Latin both Plato and Plotinus, and searched into and judiciously sifted the abstrusest writers of theosophy. But to her mysticism she plainly united a vigorous and confident will. Moore himself said that she was one that would not give up her judgment entirely unto any. Such a character, enthusiastic yet self-reliant, of subtle spiritual insight, chastened by suffering, and yet of firm purpose, naturally exerted a great attraction for an intelligence like Moore's free and rational, yet mobile and restlessly sympathetic. Her genius and generous force of thought charmed him, and probably influenced and stimulated him more than he imagined, and the fact that he wrote so many of his books at Ragley may be taken as clear evidence of this. But Ragley was the seat of other influences besides those of a congenial and thoughtful mistress. Spiritualism found a favorite abode in it, in the shape not only of religious enthusiasm, but of gifts and wonders which seemed to many little else than miraculous. In addition to the best and chiefest of the Quakers, its society embraced two of the most extraordinary men of the time, Baron Van Helmont and the no less famous Valentine Greatrakes, with both of whom Moore made special acquaintance in this pleasant retreat. The former is not to be confounded with the well-known chemist of the same name, who, following in the footsteps of Paracelsus, did much with all his extravagances to advance the study of natural science in the first half of the seventeenth century. Footnote. Jean-Baptiste van Helmont was a gentleman of Brabant and lord of Merode, etc. He was born in Brussels in 1577 and passed most of his time on his Flemish estate engaged in the researches of his laboratory. He died in 1644. End of footnote. The van Helmont who was Moore's associate and in whose person and name he wrote the panegyric of Lady Conway, to which we have already adverted, was the son of this distinguished chemist. He inherited something of his father's genius, but more of his enthusiasm and extravagance. He seems to have devoted himself solely to those occult medical studies, which were a secondary passion with his parent, and to have lived for some time in Lady Conway's family as physician. He was greatly attached, along with his friend and patroness, to the Quakers, and attended their meetings frequently. From all we learn of him, it is difficult to get a real view of his character. Moore's remark might lead us to infer that he was either a pure, unconscious enthusiast, or a well-intentioned, self-denying philanthropist. He knew as little of himself, truly and really, Moore says, as one that had never seen him in his life. Great Rakes is a comparatively well-known person his name being one of the most celebrated in that strange history of occult marvels which is so far from having run its course that our age, with all its enlightenment, is likely to add to it one of its most startling and memorable chapters. 
his wonderful cures made even more noise in the seventeenth century than any similar phenomena have yet done in the nineteenth they were the subject of formal investigation by the royal society and quite carried away men like moore and glanville both of whom have specially adverted to them footnote the former in the notes to his latin version of enthusiasmus triumphatus and the latter in his well-known publication on witchcraft End of footnote. great rakes was a native of ireland a gentleman of liberal birth and fortune well educated and apparently possessed both of public and private virtues there is no reason to doubt his honesty at first it is said that he was far from eager to exert the strange powers with which he felt himself endowed but at length the impulse became too powerful for him and having tried his skill on some persons in the neighborhood of his residence the effect was so marked that sick people flocked to him from all quarters he cured them in the most extraordinary manner merely by laying his hands upon them and stroking them lady conway's sufferings led her to invite him to england where his success was no less astonishing save in her own case his performances became the talk of town and country and his reputation was keenly canvassed at the coffee-houses and everywhere writes a person of great veracity and a philosopher to glanville quote, the great discourse now is about mr g the famous irish stroker he undergoes curious censures here some take him to be a conjurer and some an impostor but others again adore him as an apostle i confess i think the man is free from all design of a very agreeable conversation not addicted to any vice nor to any sect or party but is i believe a sincere protestant i was three weeks together with him at my lord conway's and saw him i think lay his hands upon a thousand persons and really there is something in it more than ordinary but i am convinced tis not miraculous i have seen pains strangely fly before his hand till he hath chased them out of the body dimness cleared and deafness cured by his touch twenty persons at several times in fits of the falling sickness were in two or three minutes brought to themselves so as to tell where their pain was and then he hath pursued it till he hath driven it out at some extreme part running sores of the king's evil dried up and colonels brought to apuration by his hand Close quote. Yet, adds Glanville, agreeing in this respect with his friend Moore, quote, I have many reasons to persuade me that nothing of all this is miraculous. He pretends not to give testimony to any doctrine. The manner of his operation speaks it to be natural. The cure seldom succeeds without reiterated touches. His patients often relapse. He fails frequently. He can do nothing where there is any decay in nature, and many distempers are not at all obedient to his touch so that i confess i refer all his virtue to his particular temper and complexion and i take his spirits to be a kind of elixir and universal ferment and that he cures as dr m expresseth it by a sanative contagion moore had a strong faith as many men of genius have had in what may be called the sanatory virtue of rare personal gifts whether of mind or of body with the most unaffected candor a candor so perfectly simple as to be to our modern tastes ludicrous he expresses his belief that he was himself endowed in a remarkable degree with such gifts like socrates he had his monitory counselings and warnings impulses borne in upon his spirit in an irresistible and more than ordinary manner frequently in his writings such impulses would come to him and lead him in a different line of thought from that which he had intended when he saw afterwards that the way he was going would have led him into what he calls an angiportus or position of difficulty he was in a very great rapture when he was thus affected it is added by his biographer that he was not a little shy in speaking of matters of this nature 
that it was only occasionally to his most intimate friends that he would do so, and that there was good reason to believe that he was more frequently moved in such a manner than he hath anyhow particularly related. His vivid realization of the spiritual world, and the presence of higher powers everywhere encircling human life, made it natural and easy for him to believe such things. His belief in what he declared to be the strange properties of his body is of a more remarkable kind. He has himself placed on deliberate record, in speaking of Great Rakes's singular endowments, that certain products of his own person, quote, had naturally the flavor of violets, that his breast and body, especially when very young, would of themselves, in like manner, send forth flowery and aromatic odors from them, and such as he daily almost was sensible of when he came to put off his clothes and go to bed. And even afterwards, when he was older, about the end of winter or beginning of the spring, he did frequently perceive certain sweet and herbaceous smells about him, when yet there were no such external objects near from whence they could proceed. Whatever explanation may be given of this curious story, Moore himself supposed the results to arise from the peculiar virtue of his temperament and constitution. Anima sica, anima pura, anima sica sapientissima, he was wont to say, repeating an ancient aphorism, and explaining that a dry constitution, such as he had, was naturally the seat of the purest and wisest mind. Undoubtedly he had a singularly healthy and elastic bodily frame, fitted as a well-strung instrument to his soul. It seemed built for a hundred years, and as he further says of himself, quote, there were not many that could have borne that high warmth and activity of thoughtfulness and intense writing. After all his study and depth of thought in the daytime, when he came to sleep, he had a strange sort of narcotic power, as his word was, that drew him to it, and he was no sooner in a manner laid in his bed, but the falling of a house would scarce wake him. When yet early in the morning he was wont to awake usually into an immediate unexpressible life and vigor, with all his thoughts and notions raying about him, as beams surrounding the center from whence they all proceed. He had so tempered and attuned his body that it readily obeyed all the movements of his mind, and he was able to have his thoughts oftentimes as clear as he could almost desire, and to take them off or fix them upon a subject in a manner as he pleased. It was pleasant, he said, to go quick in thought from notion to notion without any images of words in the mind. As we have glided into these personal details, it may be as well so far to complete them. Moore lived very much alone in the paradise which he had made for himself in Christ's college, save when the mistress of Ragley tempted him to join her society. Many happy days, he said, he had spent in his chamber, and so sweet and pleasing was the fruit of his solitary labors and musings, that they often appeared to him, in looking back upon them, as an aromatic field. His father, who had, we have seen, at one time cherished other and ambitious hopes regarding him, quote, coming into his room, and seeing him there with his books about him, and full well knowing the tendencies of his studies, was most highly affected with it, and in a rapture said, what indeed was the truth, that he thought he spent his time in an angelical way. He had no doubt of the propriety of the mode of life he had chosen for himself. He knew his own powers, and appreciated what he could do as well as what was agreeable to him. There were some of the spiritualists, he said, who would have had him to go upon a stall, and from thence preach to the people. But I have measured myself, he added, from the height to the depth, and know what I can do and what I ought to do, and I do it. If he was to live his whole life over again, he would do just for the main as he had done. 
living in college, he frequented, for the most part, quote, the public hall, except on Fridays, which being a fish day, and that a sort of food which did not then so well agree with him, he chose rather to dine upon something else in his chamber. He kept more than once the time of Lent, abstaining from flesh. But he found, he said, that it quite altered the tone of his body, and so afterwards forbore the observing of it. His drink was, for the most part, the college small beer, which, in his pleasant way of speaking, he would say sometimes was seraphical, and the best liquor in the world. And he hath several times observed, according to the generous heat that was in him, how mightily he should find himself refreshed by it. But he was not at times without his farther refreshments of a better sort. And every one, adds his biographer with more sense than many who have ventured to touch such details, must here follow his own constitution and best experience in these matters. Such a life as Moore's necessarily presents few points of contact with the great events of his time. He was so busy in his chamber with his pen and lines as not to mind much the bustles and affairs of the world without. He did not occupy any party position, even in that indefinite sense in which Whichcote and Cudworth may be said to have done. He had no relations with the statesmen of the Civil War and the Commonwealth, and never made, like his friends, any prominent public appearance. Educated in a Calvinistic, although not a Puritan, home, he turned aside very early from all that could have connected him with the religious parties dominant in his youth. Footnote. Decided Calvinist as his father was, he does not seem to have been a Puritan. Moore himself at least says, quote, his nearest relations were deep sufferers for the king. Close quote. End of footnote. His ideal was the Church of England as it existed before the times of disturbance, the Church of the Reformation and of Hooker. To popery, in every form, he was as violently opposed as it was in his nature to be, and one of his chief works is mainly devoted to an exposure of its anti-Christian features, the points in which it seems to him to favor idolatry, to bind burdens upon the conscience, and to deaden and resist, instead of quickening and educating, the divine life. Footnote. A Modest Enquiry into the Mystery of Iniquity, First Part, containing a careful and partial delineation of the true idea of anti-Christianism, 1564. End of footnote. All his rational impulses rose against such a system. But both his reason and his love of quietness and order were opposed to what he considered the excesses of Puritanism, the dismal spectacle of an infinity of sects and schisms. We have already seen his relations with the Quakers. Not all his affectionate respect for Lady Conway could make him regard them with any leniency or favor, and he is here and there through his writings hardly fair to them, as when he describes them as the offspring of the familists. Footnote. Divine Dialogues, page 459 to 567. These so-called familists were the special bugbear of reasonable religious people amidst the swarming sects of the century. Moore describes them and their principles at length in his Grand Mystery of Godliness, and connects them directly with H. Nicholas, a fanatic of Amsterdam. They seem to have resembled the modern communities of love. End of footnote. He probably disliked the many forms of obtrusive fanaticism which prevailed in England in the seventeenth century, all the more because there was a side of his nature on which he felt he had some affinity with them. In all that he says of the Quakers, and throughout his interesting treatise on enthusiasm, it is not difficult to trace the operation of this feeling. But his intense hatred of disorder was sufficient to keep in check all his own natural tendencies towards enthusiasm. 
ardent as his religious feelings were, he cherished a strong dislike to that individualism and assertion of special divine prerogative, which more or less lie at the basis of all fanaticism. Your enormous contumacity and schismaticalness, he said to the sectaries, is hugely for the interest of Antichrist, and as manifestly against the interests of the kingdom of Christ. Footnote. Apology, chapter 10, 1664. In this same apology, he presses the sectaries with the following rather happy expostulation. Quote, Ye that fancy yourselves the only zealots for truth and holiness, the only sound and incontaminate part of our nation, but the national church, sick and crazy, if it were so, indeed, where is your charity, and how little your discretion, to run out of the house now your mother lies thus on her sickbed? Is it to call the physician? No. I demand, then, why do you run out of the house? Oh, my mother is sick, and I am in good health. Will not any one reply, more unmannerly and unnatural son you, to leave your mother, when you ought most to assist and administer help unto her, and thus to strut out of doors merely to ostentate your own health, as if your glory was the greater that your mother is sick while you fancy yourself so well. Close quote. End of footnote. Both in his poems and elsewhere he inveighs against the empty opinionativeness so rampant, and the source of so many evils. Quote, "'Tis opinion that makes the riven heavens with tempests ring, and thundering engine murderous balls outsling, and send men's groaning ghosts to lower shade of horrid hell. This the wide world doth bring to devastation, makes mankind to fade, such direful things doth false religion persuade. But true religion, sprung from God above, is like her fountain, full of charity, embracing all things with a tender love, full of good will and meek expectancy, full of true justice and sure verity, in heart and voice free, large, even infinite, not wedged in straight particularity, but grasping all in her vast active sprite, bright lamp of God, that men would joy in thy pure light. For himself he loved nothing more, and desired nothing better, than the Church of England with its decent grandeur and splendor, he cannot but think that it would be a sorry exchange to accept of presbytery instead, which would prove but a democratical papacy. Yet he elsewhere admits that episcopacy may be prized unduly, and that the popular element may not be without its value and advantage. His main concern is that neither one order of church government nor another usurp the place which only religion itself should hold. He is for the naked truth of Christianity, and nothing more willing even to be called a Puritan, if this be to be a Puritan. I am, he concludes, quote, above all sects whatsoever as sects, for I am a true and free Christian, and what I write and speak is for the interest of Christ and in behalf of the life of the Lamb. Close quote. If Moore's life as a student kept him retired from the world, it greatly stimulated his productivity as an author. Probably, also, it contributed in some degree to the endless prolixity and repetitions of his writings. We feel especially with him, as more or less with all the Cambridge school, except Whichcote, that we are conversing with a mind too little braced by active discipline, and the prompt, systematic, compact habits which come from large intercourse with men, and the affairs which stir men to powerful movement or great ambitions. The air of a school, which was, after all, confined to a narrow, if influential, sphere, is more pervading in his writings than in any of the others. Christ College, with its books, is never far out of sight, and all the sweetness and seclusion of Ragley, 
the solemnness of the place, its shady walks and hills and woods, where he lost sight of the world and the world of him, did not help to let the light of day or the breath of the common air into his choice theories, however they may have assisted him in finding them out and elaborating them. In this respect we have been reminded more than once of an analogy betwixt him and the leaders of the modern high church school in its original development. Oxford and Hursley Parsonage may not inaptly be compared to Cambridge and Ragley, and the enervating force of a willful seclusion from the world is certainly not less conspicuous in Keeble and Newman, although in a different direction, than in our author. It may be pleasant to keep away from the bustles and affairs of the world without, as it is pleasant to contemplate the peculiar beauty and serenity of character which ripen amidst such retirements. But, after all, no man can escape from his fellow men and the rough facts of ordinary human life without spiritual and intellectual injury. The product may be finer that is grown in solitude, but it will neither be so useful nor in many respects so true and good. And so Moore's writings, largely as they bulk in his life, and deeply interesting as some of them are to the religious and philosophical student, have long ceased to exert any influence. They never became literature. None of them have even attained the sort of dignified prominence accorded to Cudworth's intellectual system, which is eminently one of those books which people agree in highly respecting without thinking of reading. As to their reception in his own age, there are two accounts not very easy to reconcile. On the one hand, it is stated that an eminent London bookseller declared that, for twenty years after the return of Charles II, the mystery of godliness and Dr. Moore's other works ruled all the booksellers in London. On the other hand, his biographer says virtually on his own authority, quote, that though he had not wanted particular and extraordinary respects from many persons, yet the world in general had either been in part averse to his writings, or not known well what to make of some things in them. "'Tis very certain, he adds, that his writings are not generally, I will not say read, but so much as known, and many scholars themselves are in a great measure strangers to them." The truth seems to be that some of his writings, at least, were very well received, and judging from the number of editions which they reached, may be said to have been popular, but that he himself was disappointed with the welcome accorded to his favorite notions, or theories as he called them. These children of his brain were naturally much prized by him, and he wondered, as so many theorists have done before and since, that others did not value them as much as himself. To his own mind they appeared, quote, so very clear, as well as glorious, that he almost fancied he should have carried all before him. But a little experience served to cure him of this vanity, and he quickly perceived that he was not like to be overpopular. The period of his activity as an author stretched from the first publication of his poems, in 1642, to within ten years of the close of his life, in 1687, or a period of thirty-five years. During all this time he continued to write sometimes what we would now call pamphlets rather than books, but also many elaborate and formal treatises. He has himself left us a list of his publications in their chronological order, and we give a summary of it below, which may interest the reader. Extended footnote. The following is a summary of Moore's statement of the order in which he composed his works. We have abbreviated or thrown out the personal details which he intersperses with his statement, save in so far as they give some real explanation of the character of the works or the circumstances of their origin. We have also added such explanations of our own as may give the reader some idea of writings which he has not himself characterized. 1. 
1642 to 47, Philosophical Poems. 2. 1650 to 51, Letter and Reply to Eugenius Philolethes under the pseudonym of Elizonomastics. We have not seen this letter nor reply, except as quoted by Ward in his Life. He himself describes them as follows. Quote, Opuscula sane ludicroseria et quae nunquam scripsissim nisi neinis nugisque eorum temporum enthusiasticis dicam an fantasticis eo provocatus. Close quote. 3. 1652. Antidote against Atheism. New edition, 1655. Also in collection of philosophical writings, 1662. 4. 1653. Conjectura Kabbalistica, or attempt to interpret the three first chapters of Genesis in a threefold manner, literal, philosophical, and mystical, or divinely moral, also in collection, etc., 1662. 5. 1656. Enthusiasmus Triumphatus, or a brief discourse of the nature, causes, kinds, and cure of enthusiasm, also in collection, etc., 1662. 6. 1659. Immortality of the Soul, with a valuable preface on the general subject of his philosophy, also 1662. 7. 1660. An explanation of the grand mystery of godliness, written after an illness in which he had vowed, if spared, to write a book demonstrative of the truth of the Christian religion, so far as concerns the person and offices of Christ, to the confusion of fanatics and infidels alike. 8. 1662 collection of philosophical writings, embracing numbers 3, 4, 5, and 6, with an appendix to number 3, Latin correspondence with Descartes, and letter to V.C. 9. 1664. Enquiry into the mystery of iniquity. First part chiefly directed against popery. Second part treating of the prophecies of scripture regarding the reign of Antichrist. 10. 1666. Enchiridium Ethicum, or Manual of Ethics, the occasion of writing which is explained in our Notice of Cudworth, New Edition, 1669. 11. 1668. Divine Dialogues, containing disquisitions concerning the attributes and providence of God. 12. 1669. Expositio Prophetica Septem Epistolarum ad Septem Ecclesias Asiaticus, una cum antidoto adversis idolatrium prophetical explanation of the seven epistles to the seven churches of Asia, along with antidote against idolatry, especially directed against certain doctrines of the Council of Trent. 13. 1670. Philosophiae Teutonicae Censura. Criticism of the philosophy of Jacob Bohm. 14. 1671. Enchiridium Metaphysicum. Partly translated apparently by himself, along with a letter, answer to a learned psychopyrus, on the nature of spirit in Glanville's Seducimus Triumphatus. 15. 1672-78, Moore employed himself in issuing complete editions of his works in Latin, first his Opera Theologica in 1675, and, subsequently, in 1678, his Opera Philosophica. The Opera Theologica contains numbers 7, 9, 12, along with some smaller pieces and hymns in Latin. The latter form two volumes folio. Volume 1 contains numbers 10, 14, 11, along with various minor philosophical writings, the productions of his later years, 
partly essays on what may be called natural philosophy, for example, the gravity and weight of fluid bodies in connection with the experiments of Torricelli, and partly a series of cabalistical writings, such as a mystical explanation of the vision of Ezekiel, a cabalistic catechism, etc. Also, a further letter to V.C. and a refutation of Spinoza. Duarum precipuarum atheismi Spinoziani columnarum subversio. Volume 2 contains the collection of the philosophical writings published in English in 1662. This Latin republication of his writings was aided by a legacy from an admiring disciple, John Cockschwit, of the Inner Temple, who left 300 pounds for the purpose. End of footnote. Some of the most characteristic of his works seem to have been the most popular, and amongst these may be mentioned The Antidote Against Atheism, his first prose publication in 1652, and the essay on the immortality of the soul, along with his two extended treatises, The Grand Mystery of Godliness and The Mystery of Iniquity, the former of which was published in the year of the Restoration, and the latter four years later. But of all his writings, the only one which can be said to have retained any literary popularity, or to be commendable to the modern reader, is his Divine Dialogues, from which we have already given an extract of some length, illustrative of his mental and spiritual growth. It is of this volume that Dr. Blair speaks in his lectures on rhetoric as one of the most remarkable in the English language, though the style, he adds, quote, be now in some measure obsolete, and the speakers be marked with the academic stiffness of those times, yet the dialogue is animated by a variety of character and a sprightliness of conversation beyond what are commonly met with in writings of this kind. Close quote. The divine dialogues are certainly, upon the whole, the most interesting and readable of all Moore's works. The current of thought runs along smoothly, with less tendency than in any of his other writings to digressive absurdity and wearisome subdivisions. The style is here and there fresh and powerful, and there is not only some liveliness of movement in the successive conversations, but an attempt is made, as Blair implies, to impart a definite portraiture to the several speakers, and to preserve throughout their individuality and consistency. This attempt is not very successful, but it is one in which scarcely any modern writer of dialogues has succeeded, and more may in this respect compare happily even with Barclay in an age of far more literary brilliancy. Footnote except perhaps Mr. Savage Landor in some of his imaginary conversations. End of footnote. The divine dialogues, moreover, possess for the common reader the advantage of condensing his general views in philosophy and religion. In fact, most of his characteristic principles may be gathered from them. The year 1668, in which he composed the dialogues, may be said to mark the apex of Moore's intellectual activity. It is true that after this he composed his Manual of Metaphysics, and attacked both Jacob Bohm and Spinoza in elaborate treatises. But the elasticity and temper of his philosophical genius are less buoyant in these efforts. His metaphysics, elaborate though they be, are in the main only a systematic and somewhat desultory expansion of views regarding the nature and proof of incorporeal substances which he had already more than once expressed, while his cabalistical and prophetical studies have acquired a stronger hold of his mind. Within the next ten years there are no fewer than five publications taken up with mystical subjects, some of them of the most curious technical character, including a cabalistic catechism. Two of these writings are addressed to a friend, Knorr, a leading German Orientalist, whose speculations at this time considerably influenced him. Knorr had traveled a great deal and zealously devoted himself in his peregrinations to chemistry and the cabalistic art. 
he was a friend of van helmont with whom he conducted a correspondence which appears to have engaged the attention of our author he was evidently a man of remarkable if somewhat useless erudition from the interest which he excited in lightfoot and others footnote his reputation was chiefly founded on a work entitled cabala denudata seo doctrina hebreorum transcendalis et metaphysica atque theologica etc three volumes quarto a farrago it is said of wild reveries and mystical absurdities with occasionally some learned notices of the philosophy of the hebrews chalmers biographical dictionary End of footnote. he had read and admired moore's works and his admiration seems to have exercised an injurious influence on a mind only too much inclined naturally to transcendental vagaries and mystical dreams footnote see his series of cabalistic writings opera omnia book one four twenty three to five twenty eight especially his cabalistic catechism and fundamenta philosophiae sive cabale eto paedo melisei in which he discusses an extraordinary dream which he had of an eagle a boy and a bee which appeared to him in their transformations to represent a form of Jewish Kabbalah. End of footnote. The theosophic elements already so apparent in his philosophical poems were for some time held in check by his higher life of reason and healthy appreciation of natural and moral facts. But gradually they acquired a more marked ascendancy as his mental habits became fixed, and the elasticity of natural feeling and thought began to decay. The balance which had been long trembling began at length to decline on the unhealthy side. Prophetical studies, which have been the bane of so many minds of his stamp, became more and more attractive to him. Ezekiel's dream and the synchronous method of the apocalyptic visions received elaborate transcendental explanation. He was himself conscious, apparently, of an undue confidence in this sort of study, yet he was unable to resist its fascinations. Footnote in allusion it is supposed to himself he makes one of the speakers in his fifth dialogue say quote, the greatest fanaticism i know in him is this that he professeth he understands clearly the truth of several prophecies of the mainest concernment which yet many others pretend to be very obscure Close quote. End of footnote. such confidence it may be safely said is never found united with a sober and healthy rational discernment a mind addicted to prophetical interpretation is almost always a mind either weak in itself or becoming weakened in the intoxication of its own delusions of the last ten years of moore's life we have no record his health does not seem to have been good for we find him writing in the end of sixteen eighty quote, i have not been in bodily health this is the best day i have had a great while Close quote. yet he does not appear even then to have laid aside his pen on the contrary says his biographer quote, he wrote to the very last, and had then under his hands Medela Mundi, or a practical treatise which he called in that title The Cure of the World. There is no further trace of this treatise, but it was probably the same which he mentions in one of his letters under the name of The Safe Guide. It is pleasant to reflect that his active mind remained full of thoughts for others to the last, and that those great questions in which he said he had spent all his time, what is good and what is true, were apparently as fresh and important with him at the end as at the beginning. He died on the morning of the 1st of September, 1687, and was interred in the chapel of his college, where his friend Cudworth was to be laid beside him within less than a year. End of chapter 5, part 2